don't know about you, um, what books you read. Um, I obviously, I buy lots of books. I'm increasingly moving from buying books on paper to buying books electronically. Uh, and a lot of those books I have to buy. I enjoy buying them, but I have to buy them. And so when it comes to uh, that sort of relaxing side of reading, I must admit I have a bit of a skinflint tendency. I've signed up to something called BookBub, which means that it sends out to you an email every day with all of the free books on Kindle. And uh, I've subscribed to crime thrillers, which is what I enjoy reading. And I only read free crime thrillers these days. I don't spend money on books, which are just there to kind of give me relaxation and enjoyment. Bit of a skin flink, really, isn't it? The, the problem is, I finished a book last night, actually, and it was brilliant. It was free. It, it wasn't brilliant because it was free. It was just, it was a brilliant story. Um, however, there are occasions when you buy a book and you get to the end of it, and it's a bit... Actually, I don't know why I've spent the past few weeks for a bit of time each day or every other day reading this story, getting to the end of it and thinking, actually, that was just rubbish. It just kind of fizzled out. I guess, in a sense, we might be tempted to think of that with regards to this final chapter of Nehemiah. We've been on this great story of massive project huge reconstruction, an incredible uh, motivating work where people have got behind Nehemiah, teams have been constructed, work has been apportioned out, uh, enemies have been defeated in the process, um, political um, maneuverings have been uh, dodged, I guess, uh, and then finally these walls are built and then we get to this. And it's a bit of a there's a danger that we read it like that. However, there are also certain books which are available and we read, and on face value they seem to be, what was that all about? Uh, And then when we start to think about it, we realize that the final section of the book, although on first scan it appears to be a bit, bit of a letdown, It actually promotes all sorts of questions. It gets us really thinking. I'm going to suggest to you one book. Albert Camus wrote a book called The Stranger. Uh, It's one of those classic uh, 1950s, I think it was probably written, mid-20th century, uh, existential books. That's probably persuaded 90% of people not to buy it. Uh, great story where we get to the end of it, and Albert Camus, in this, the character that he writes about, uh, is charged with, with murder. And the whole of the case, I won't tell you the end, the whole of the case revolves around the attitude that he displayed at his mother's funeral or regarding his mother's death. And you get to the end, and it feels initially like a, what was all that about? And then you pause and you start to think, wow, that raises some really big questions. In a sense, the conclusion of this story raises some huge questions. In fact, by God's will, by God's purpose, what he is doing is he's taking us on a journey, which is not Nehemiah standalone. 
It's a journey of his work, his engagement with his people that at times leaves us on a bit of a, where's this going? And yet prompts us to say, but where does it take us? Where does this story actually go? Because the very sense that it feels unfulfilling is a reason for us to look elsewhere, isn't it? Where does this go? What does happen? Let's have a bit of a recap because it was a long reading. Let's break it up into a few chunks. The gist of the final chapter is this. Nehemiah, who's been sent by Artaxerxes, or Artaxerxes really, has been willing for him to go. Uh, and to do the work in Jerusalem, reconstructing the walls. He goes back to the royal court, uh, and in the intervening period, all sorts of things seem to just drift, seem to go wrong. He returns, and he puts them right. That's, if you like, that's the big bookends of the story. He goes away, things drift, he comes back, he puts them right. What actually drifts? There's a mess at the temple. There's issues with the way the temple is being used. There's no provision for the Levites and the songwriters. There's a problem with the way people perceive their worship. Secondly, there's a problem with the way people are regarding and treating the Sabbath day, a day which was set aside for God's people, which was unique, which was uh, descriptive, of God's work in in creation and a way in which they were to observe their life in line with the way God displayed His work. And there was a breakdown in that. And then there is a breakdown in relationship. There is continuing of intermarrying with all of the adjoining tribes. There's the three kind of focuses of problems. And Nehemiah sees this, he comes back, he resolves the issues. We're going to have a look a little bit at the way he resolves the issues. But he comes back, and in a sense, what he's doing is he's, he's committing himself again, and this is why I think this last chapter is brilliant, is he's committing himself to the true rebuilding of Jerusalem. You see, there's a danger that we could lose sight of what rebuilding Jerusalem was all about. It was about bricks and mortar. It was about putting gates onto hinges and making sure that they swung and closed at night uh, and making sure that the temple was restored and all of those kind of things. And yet what Nehemiah is concerned about is that Jerusalem is not simply built, but that Jerusalem is restored so that the people who are living in Jerusalem are once again displaying purity and righteousness before God as a display to the world. That's what he's bothered about. In a sense, the building of the walls, the putting the gates on the hinges, all of that stuff, that was a means to the end. The end was to get Jerusalem right so that those who lived in Jerusalem looked like God's people. That was what he was about. So the end, although it feels like a bit of a... In actual fact, it kind of focuses our minds. This is what Nehemiah was concerned about. You know, in our, in our lives, I guess, we all have different priorities. We commit ourselves to different things. We do different things. 
And I guess for all of the decisions that we make, there are motivations behind why we do things. We decide to live in a particular way. We prioritize certain things. One of the things that the Bible is constantly, subtly portraying before us all the time is that the decisions that we make have two choices. They can be decisions which are motivated by me, or they can be decisions, whatever they might be, which are shaped and which are flavored by my faith in the God of the Bible through Jesus. And that's what, I guess, for us who are living two and a half thousand years after this, that for us is what's probably quite helpful. How is my life? Is my life, and here's a decision for all of us, is my life a life which is shaped in all of its detail, which is influenced, which is flavored by my commitment to Jesus as my Savior, if that's who we are. Now, maybe there's a starting point there that perhaps we need to be honest and say, is that who I am? Fair enough. That's for you to think through, for you to work through in your minds as you come into terms with the demands that God makes of us to turn to Him and to repent and to believe and to have faith in Jesus. We might need to say, is that, is that really me? But if we have said, is that really me? The next stage is, is it impacting my life? Is it changing the way that I live on a day-to-day -day basis? I think really the three areas that we're looking at hit on three key, if, if you like, themes. They hit on the issue of power and authority, number one. They hit on the issue of money and resource, number two. And they hit on the issue of relationships and love as number three. We're going to look at each one of those, because each of those which is displayed in this final chapter are equally reflected in our lives today. So here we are, none of us, I don't think, don't think, I just reserve that, I'm trying to remember whether anybody actually lives in York, I don't think any of us live in a city which is surrounded by a wall. Correct me at the end if I'm wrong, don't think we do. But I know this, none of us prioritize our lives by the place that we live, because we consider it a holy place. That's gone. What we find resonance with these people in is that we are living in a way which says, that's who I am. I am a believer in Jesus, and I connect myself back through the storyline of the Bible which says that I am the new Israel. That's who I am the people of God. I belong there. And these issues are the same for us. So let's have a look at the first, first one, power and authority. Verse 4 says this, before this, before this is relating to the couple of paragraphs earlier, where probably need to give you a little bit of background here. We saw last week, Ash presented to us the great celebration. I almost felt as if I was walking around the walls of Jerusalem singing last week. Uh, and yet that's one day. What was left, as Nehemiah put everything in place, was 
all of the day-to-day -day work that made that celebration true. We could celebrate for a day and it could be meaningless. Celebrating continually is about living life day by day as though that really means. And so Nehemiah has put all of this in place. And then we said before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Do you remember Tobiah? It's been one of the spoken of enemies right the way through this story. And Eliashib the priest is related or closely associated with Tobiah. That immediately, if we've been following the storyline, it should be ringing some alarm bells, shouldn't it? That there's a possible problem here. And there is a problem. Because he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers as well as the contributions for the priests. Here's the temple. We live in Jerusalem. At the very heart... In, in importance terms, at the very heart of Jerusalem is the temple. That's what it's all about. It's a place which displays our commitment to the belief that the God who we worship is the power and the authority in our lives. We serve that God because we believe He is worthy of service. We serve Him because we believe He truly is King. And the display of that temple and the importance and significance of that temple is saying that's what we believe. And Eliashib is saying, actually, what's more important is my relationship with Tobiah. Tobiah is quite evidently a powerful man. If you remember in the past, he's been writing letters to Artaxerxes with Sambalat. He's causing all sorts of political issue. He is a seriously connected person. And the issue for this high priest, Eliashib, reflected as well in the people, because we also read that they're not giving to the temple, and therefore the Levites and the musicians who've been circling the walls, we have had a great sing, we're all committed to this, they've gone back to their fields. Because all that Nehemiah had made sure was in place has been disregarded. It has been forgotten because we don't believe it's as important as it truly is. We actually believe this. I would say that this chapter is signifying the descent of God's people back to idolatry. That's blunt, isn't it? It's the people reverting to idolatry. And you say, I do not see a single idol here. And yet we do. What is idolatry? At its heart, what is it? It's the belief that this, in this present moment, is more important than God. It's the belief that this power is going to do me better than the power and authority of God. And Eliashib says, for all of the, the purity of this temple, this indication, what happens in the temple? Everything's got to be purified. 
and Tobiah's using it as a, an overflow for his palace. It's just a storeroom. It's a really safe storeroom. It's a really dry storeroom. It's a really great storeroom. That's all it is. What's the problem for Eliashib? His problem is quite simply this. My relationship with Tobiah, the, influence in the, the influences in the world that I see around me are more important in my mind, in my attitude, than the God who I worship. Now when we put idolatry like that, I think it's really easy for us to see how we can be the people, can't we? We can be idolatrous people. We can make decisions. Paul, Paul puts it like this to the Romans. Yeah, we don't come to a, a temple. We don't treat this place as a holy space. That has gone. You know, the fact that I store a spare pair of shoes in my little room over there doesn't desecrate the temple in the way that Eliashib allowed Tobiah to desecrate the temple. It's not about holy space anymore. Paul puts it like this to the Romans. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's temple language. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, he's saying, the temple stuff, that's past. True holiness is you. You sacrifice you. You bring you as a pure worship offering. You commit you to the worship and the glory and the honor of God. That's why we can come in here and we can spill our coffee and okay, we're bothered about the mess on the carpet, but we've not desecrated the temple. And yet, there are many occasions when I might decide that my relationship with that person who has influence in this world is more important than my walk before God. And the decisions that I might make in my career, where I turn a blind eye to the attitudes and the behaviors that I am called to live according to the patterns of this world, where I ignore who I am because I believe that that current power is more important than the authority of God in my life. That is idolatry. And the descent is quite subtle. Do you think, do you really think, with all that had gone on, all the people got together, waved Nehemiah off into the distance as he rode down the hill away from Jerusalem, and then they all turned around and said, right guys, let's do it the way we want it now. No, it was a gentle and it was a subtle slippage. It became something that it ought not to be. Not in great strides, but in little steps, because that's how we fall into idolatry. Secondly, we see that they loved money 
more than they loved the glory of God. <laughs> I think it's great the way uh, Nehemiah behaves. Firstly, we see that I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, verse 10, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their fields. So there we've got a problem with the temple, but we've also got a problem with money, haven't we? We've got a problem with resources. People have decided, okay, first fruits, Ash brought this out a few weeks ago, first fruits, the commitment to the glory and honor of God, the commitment to the glory of the gospel, all of that good stuff, that's my first priority. And then what I'll actually decide is, ah, no, maybe I'll just keep it first and then I'll work out what I can actually do. And then when I take that step, I end up in a place where I don't do anything. And that's where the people had got to. Their commitment to God had not been prioritized, and therefore they had ended up in a place where nothing was given. Here's my encouragement to you. This is not a demand that everybody works out, first and foremost, a percentage which they give to God. That is not a plea with regards to our commitment to the gospel and resourcing of the gospel right now. However, my commitment in my mind is this. If we have in our mindset first that I am giving to the glory of the gospel and then I am working out where I sit beyond that, we've got our priorities right. And if we don't prioritize that, we tend not to give anything. That's where we tend to be. We tend to be where the people are here, and the result is the Levites and the musicians end up, they end up just having to drift off into fields because they're not being provided for. Because the commitment that Moses had made, then David had made, then Solomon had made, then Nehemiah had made to the glory of the temple, according to God's will and purpose, was not being committed to. And we can be in the same place today. In a sense, it doesn't so much matter what is given. It's more a commitment to give first. It's a commitment to give first. What's the next problem? <laughs> I, I think it... I, Nehemiah is just straight out there, isn't he? Next thing, in the verse 15, it says this. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kind of loads. And they're bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against sell selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. Here's the issue. We're prioritizing trade over the glory of recognizing the pattern of God in creation. That's the issue. Nehemiah, he decides, right, I'm going to sort this out on, on the... The, the evening before the Sabbath, as the sun goes down, he shuts the gates. And all the merchants turn up outside and they can't get in. So he leans over the walls and he said, Hey, fellas, let me just tell you, don't come back on the Sabbath. And if you carry on sleeping there, I'm going to arrest you. Just, that's it. I don't know how many Sabbaths it took 
But eventually they got the message and they didn't bother coming back because they understood that the priority was recognizing that my life is lived out first and foremost to describe God to the world. That's what the Sabbath is all about in the Old Testament. It's about saying I'm going to live in a way which in my actions, in my commitments, in the things that I do, everybody looking around sees God in my life. Now, Sabbath, separate subject. We can, we can talk about Sabbath at some point in the future in relation to the, the New Testament. Quite simply, I would say, Sabbath in that sense doesn't exist in the New Testament. The Lord becomes the Sabbath. Jesus becomes the Sabbath. However, however, do we have a problem where we prioritize my self-sufficiency over describing God to the world. That's the problem that we have here. The idolatry in this sense is this. I live that believing that present security, which is what I gain if I make sure I've amassed enough money, or financial resources, or working so that I, I secure myself, not trusting God that He will provide for me. If I commit myself to working, I am believing that present security is more significant than eternal security. That's my problem. And if the, that's the idolatry of the people back there, they are believing this. If we don't keep on trading, if we don't keep on keeping this money flowing, we're not, going to be, we're not going to be safe. And God says, no, pause. Take a time to reflect. Don't believe that your security is all about what you do. Trust me. That's what the Sabbath does. You know, we, we all need a Sabbath. We all need a rest. Because a rest says, I can take the moment to trust in God rather than rely on me. That's what the Sabbath is all about. It's about personal security. It's about saying, effectively, it's saying, I believe that you will look after me. I believe that whatever comes in my life is, is according to your goodness. And I can't secure it any better Myself outside of you. Money and resources. Relationships. Verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them called curses down. We'll stop there for a minute. We'll come back to that bit. Sounds a bit like racism to start with. Sounds like that. The offset to that is if you remember the book of Ruth. Ruth is all about a Moabite woman who becomes enmeshed in the people of God. It's not about that. It's not about kicking off all of the other nations and saying it's all about purity. 
It's about committing ourselves to recognizing and believing and knowing that we are the people of God. And when I commit relationship, when I invest relationship or love in places which are going to detract me from that, I lose sight of my commitment to God. The language that's used is, uh, and they couldn't even speak the language of Judah. (laughs) I guess that that's saying something, isn't it? It's a bit like saying, effectively, they're they're not singing from the same hymn sheet, you could probably say today. Well, now that we're not, we could say it, well, you're not speaking my language. Say that to loads of people from America. <laughs> you're not speaking my language. We're using the same words, but we're not together. Here's the thing, and this is what Nehemiah is relating to, when, particularly when he looks at Solomon and reflects on Solomon's life. He says this, there is a real danger when relationships become a greater priority when our love becomes a greater priority horizontally rather than vertically. When I do not first prioritize my love and relationship with God, when I prioritize other relationships, I am in danger of being dragged into a different place. That's what he says. So what's the idolatry? I live believing that pleasing a temporary relationship is more significant than pleasing an eternal relationship. That's the thing. Intimate relationship can come in all sorts of different ways. And intimate relationship drags us into a place which distracts Now, the the great thing about this is that the New Testament opens this up, and it says we can live not not worrying. Paul says this clearly to the Corinthians. He says, look, you're in relationships. They are where you are, but live to the glory of God, and those relationships can be amazingly blessed. But work out where your priority of personal relationships is. Jesus said, I've come to separate brother from brother and mother from father. He says, I've come to bring a sword. (laughs) What's he saying? He's saying, look, I've come so that you will really at points have to work out where is my relationship first. And idolatry is about pleasing my relationships over a relationship with God. Three, three forms of idolatry. I don't know about you, but I was working all of this out, and I thought, oh, this, is, this is so hard, this final chapter. Where's the good news? Where is the good news? Because that doesn't sound like good news, does it? And it was actually, amazingly, it was Albert Camus who came to my assistance. <laughs> I was thinking about the stranger. And the stranger, although it's got a desperate end, it makes me ask questions. And so this makes me ask 
questions. What does it say to me? It says, actually, for all of the Nehemiahs in the world, we can never build a perfect city. We can't do it. We can never legislate purity. We can never enforce righteousness. We can never breed perfect priests. We can't do it. Where does, does, does that lead us to despair? Or does it lead us to hope? There's a little phrase which I paused earlier. Nehemiah gets hold of some of these men who've married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. I rebuked them, verse 25, and I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah is not a kind of, um, kind of neatly dressed, clean and tidy uh, political maneuverer. He's the kind of guy who's just out there, down and dirty, says it as it is. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Nehemiah suddenly to lay into one of these guys, grabbing hold of him and beating him up and all of the rest of it? He really cared, but there's something that triggers in my mind. It's like the picture that's painted here is this person is unrighteous, therefore he needs beating and therefore he needs hair pulling out of his face. And there's another person in the very same city who's beaten and has hair pulled out of his face. When I, when I saw that verse, when, I, when it just sort of tripped in my mind. Nehemiah is all about creating righteousness, isn't it? And he's saying, I'm going to beat you up, and I'm going to kick you and destroy you if you're not righteous. And then the perfect righteous man steps into Jerusalem, and he's beaten, and his beard is pulled out, and he's kicked out of the city, and his name is Jesus. Because the end of Nehemiah just leaves me with a sense of desperation. Nehemiah's come back, he's put it all right. But he's going to go again. Where's the city going to go? Where's it going to be? Where's it going to end up? Is it all going to be great because Nehemiah has performed these final steps of restoration? Does that make a perfect Jerusalem, which is great? No, Jesus turns up and he he beats up on the priests and he says, you're treating it terribly. He goes into the temple and he kicks it about. He turns over money changers because he's bothered that they are defiling the temple. There was nothing wrong with money changers in the temple. It was a necessary step for the temple tax to be paid. But when you start making money out of it, then there's a problem. Because it's no longer a service 
It's a money-making racket. And all the problems that were here in Nehemiah's day reappear in Jesus' day, and he ends up somebody who comes in with righteousness, and that then gets treated like the unrighteous. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because we'll never build a great city ourselves. We don't need fixing, we need saving. Because these priests and any other priest is never, never good enough. We can't create a great priest, we need the perfect high priest. We need the perfect intercessor. And that's why the book of Nehemiah is so amazing. Because it tells a story, and then it leaves us at the end thinking, is that it? (laughs) No, thankfully, that's not it. It carries on. And it finds its resonance in Jesus, so that when he says, you are the city on a hill, it's about us who are now righteous, not because we're doing it, but because He's made us righteous. And therefore, when in failing ways we don't live perfectly and we drift into thinking that there are priorities outside of the glory and power of God in this world and we tend to stray, He is our righteousness. And when we prioritize money in ways that we shouldn't, and security in ways that we shouldn't, shouldn't, He is our righteousness. And when we form relationships which are not the relationships that we should form, and we create business relationships or whatever they are that are not honoring to Him, He is our righteousness. Because the book of Nehemiah is all about a vision beyond the walls. And actually, in a really great way, just sets us up for next week. So we're going to come back next Sunday, Easter Sunday, and we might just kind of twiddle on the binoculars and get a better vision beyond the walls next week.